Well, hello once again, friends. A special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. If you did, your timing is perfect, so well done there. We're launching into a new series called Better that will actually take us all the way up to Labor Day, but we're not talking about that, okay? Uh, it's going to be a series that spans the entire summer, and I'm thrilled to unpack this material with you. Uh, we named the series Better after one of my favorite quotes of all time. And if you know me, I'm somewhat of a nerd. I spend an inordinate amount of my life reading and discovering great quotes. So for this one to make one of the top spots is really saying something. The first time I heard this quote, I was in an arena at a pastor's conference in Atlanta, Georgia. Check out this picture. Yeah, imagine 8,000 people like me in one location. It was simultaneously terrifying and overwhelming. But here is the quote that the speaker delivered that day. He said, Following Jesus makes your life better. And following Jesus makes you better at life. Following Jesus makes your life better. And following Jesus makes you better at life. And the speaker noted, he's like, when you read the accounts of Jesus' life, there are some absolutely revolutionary ideas that, when applied, really do make life work better. And he said, that's the good news. The bad news is that if we're honest... Many of us who regularly attend church are far more interested in listening to what Jesus said, having group discussions about what Jesus said, pondering what Jesus said over a triple shot half-calf almond milk latte, singing songs about Jesus and singing songs to Jesus. So we're interested in all of that more than we are actually doing what he said to do. And he said the huge problem with this approach is that until we actually do the things Jesus invites us to do, we really don't look that different than people who don't attend church. We never access this new and better life. He's like, that's why so many Christians, he goes, certainly none of us, but that Christians, that was a little joke, right? Uh, we're just as likely to struggle in our marriages. We're just as likely to struggle with our kids. We're just as likely to overextend ourselves financially to try to attain a lifestyle that we really can't afford. We're just as likely to compromise our purity as we surf the internet. And so as, as the speaker continued, he said, you know, I know why so many of us don't do what Jesus invites us to do. He's like, I know this. I did research. I did interviews. He goes, you should really write this down. This is why we don't do what Jesus told us to do. Profound. Here we go. Actually doing what Jesus said to do is hard. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, he invites us to do things that are astoundingly counterintuitive. And he urges us to move in unfamiliar in uncomfortable ways. He asks us to trust him with our decisions and not just trust what we want to do as we make our decisions. And then he gave us some examples. He said, for example, Jesus told his followers, don't worry. He said it this way. He said, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. And you read it and it sounds, that's great, man. I should put that on a wall and or maybe like one of those cute Joanna Gaines art pieces. Don't worry. That's fantastic. And then you think about it and you think, you know, I, but I don't feel like I choose to worry. Anybody with me on this? I feel like worry chooses me. 
And worry chooses me whenever something happens in my life that feels out of my control, which happens, wait for it, every day. You have this, right? Yeah. So that's great, Jesus. Don't worry. Thanks for the tip. But, but there's always something to worry about. I mean, I don't worry about what I eat or drink or wear because I'm an American, right? That's kind of how that goes. But, but as far as like retirement or my health or my kids, I mean, how do you not worry about that sort of thing? To not worry would require a totally new way to be human. Well, that's not all Jesus said, right? He also said this one. He, he said basically don't lust, but he said it in the best way. Check this out. This is what Jesus tells you. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. <laughs> Thus says the Lord. And so, of course, in preparing for this, I was dying to see what the smart commentators who reflected these things wrote about this. And the one I liked the best, the guy goes, I think Jesus was exaggerating to make his point. And he, and he said, here's why. If Jesus had been serious, there would be many more blind Christians. And then he said this, this is even better, and blind people can still lust. Yes, that is so good. But, but yeah, so it's almost like, but how do you, how do you not lust? That doesn't, that doesn't even seem possible. Again, that would require, you know, learning a new way to be human. And then there's more. Jesus also said this. He said, if you have, you've heard it was said to the people long ago, and they were Jewish people, and so long ago is like Moses, Mount Sinai. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. You're like, oh yeah, that's one of the top ten. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Fantastic. And Jesus' listeners are like, yeah, I've never done that. That's great. Didn't murder. Next one. But Jesus says, no, he's not done. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And you're thinking, okay, um, that's a different thing. I mean, I can get my mind around don't murder Jesus. I'm not even sure I'm capable of, of, of murder, right? And plus, if I murder, then I get in a lot of trouble and I spend the rest of my life in prison. So there's some deterrent there too. So I'm not going to murder anybody. We're cool. But as far as like anger, how in the world do I live a life free from carrying anger with me when people do things to hurt me that doesn't even seem possible? Again, that would require a new way to be, a new way to be human. And just one more for fun, um, in case you got all of those other ones knocked. Check this one out. Uh, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And they're like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Moses told us that too. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's the first thing you said in a while that makes sense, Jesus. But I tell you, uh-oh, here it comes. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And you want to like pull Jesus over and have a come to Jesus meeting with Jesus, don't you? You're like, dude, what are you talking about? The, the reason they are my enemies is that they hate me, and I hate them. That's sort of how we define enemies. So this whole love your enemies thing, yeah, sounds great on paper. That's not possible. That would require a totally new way to be human. So it's pretty easy for us to see why we don't do often what Jesus invites us to do. His commands just border on ridiculous, if you think about it. Nonetheless, you have to admit that if there were a way to live a life free or even freer from lust, from anger, from the hatred of enemies, our lives would be unquestionably better. Moreover, if you think about it, um, Jesus is the one who predicted his own death and resurrection and then pulled it off. Which means 2,000 years ago, when Jesus died on the cross and then returned from the grave, everything changed, and he validated everything else he had said. And so if Jesus is telling us this, there must be a way that this is actually 
possible that this life he described is actually available to us. What's fascinating, um, over the course of his three-year teaching career, Jesus repeatedly invited people who had come to listen to him and to watch him do miracles to reconsider the way they were living their lives and to realign their lives with what God had in mind when he created them. Over and over again, he invited them into a better life. And he always started it with the same word. Here's how he would say it. He would get in front of a group of people and he would begin and he would say, repent. And if you're here and you haven't been in church for a while or you have been in church for a while, you're like, repent. That's a church word. Don't really use that outside of church. Tried it with my eight-year-old. Didn't go well, right? (laughs) Repent, right? But his original audience would have understood the concept. It was very much in the first century Jewish mindset. To repent was simply goes like this. To repent is to change your mind, change the way you think about something, and then change your ways. Reframe the choices that you're making and then change your ways. To realign with the way things are supposed to be. Pay attention to how you're living and realign yourself with what God wants for your life. But Jesus isn't done. He says repent. And then he tells them why they need to repent or why they even can repent in a new sort of way. Repent, he said, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And they didn't fully get this until after he'd returned from the grave and they realized who he was. But the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is like, listen, when I have come to earth, all of a sudden things that had not been possible before are possible. I've come to invite you beyond religion, beyond the rules, and to do the heart work that really will change things for you and for other people. That's the invitation. Repent, not return to rules, but repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's a new day. There's new potential. There's new opportunities. I'm here to show you the way of heaven now. And see, that's different, right? It's critical for us to know that when Jesus said heaven, he wasn't thinking of what we tend to think of when we think of heaven. I had a friend say to me, you mean like heaven, like the Disney castle in the sky where the princesses live? I was like, yeah, like heaven. Jesus was actually talking about a present reality available to each one of us, he argued that it was now possible to live in intimate relationship with God in this life. He teaches them to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's possible in the here and now to enter this intimate with God sort of life and that that life is the life that actually continues after the grave. I grew up in church and I think my sense early on was that Jesus came a lot to tell us what to do so we could go to the good place when we leave this place. But then I remember when I actually read the accounts of Jesus' life and what what was startling to me is that Jesus talked a lot more about what happens between now and your funeral than what happens on the other side. Jesus wants to save you for later, but Jesus wants to save you for now. If you're a visual learner like I am, um, what I decided to do is get really technical. I made two ultra-sophisticated drawings to help you understand what I'm talking about here. Um, so there, look at that. Isn't that just, woo? Okay, here's the deal. So this is like the timeline of your life. Here's the day you're born, right? You come into the world screaming, covered with slime, and looking like Gollum from Lord of the Rings. You know, remember that one? Maybe that was just my kids. Okay, moving on. Um, so there's a birthday, and then there's a day where you meet Jesus. You realize that God sent his one and only son to restore you to right relationships and you embrace his sacrifice on your behalf. In that moment, your sins are forgiven, right? And, and then there's some time before that, you probably just, you know, go to church and sing some songs or whatever, and then you die, and then on the other side, life with God begins. That's how most people think about life with God. Jesus would not have endorsed this drawing. 
Jesus would have endorsed this drawing, I think. Here's the day you're born. Here's the day you meet Jesus. But he would say, at that very moment, God moves inside and begins to unlock potential in your life that you didn't have prior to saying yes to Jesus and meeting the Spirit. And that that life with God begins at that moment. Death isn't even really a big deal, although it will feel like it to you. But on the other side, you continue the life with God. This is what Jesus meant when he talked about the kingdom of heaven. It's a present reality and it's available to all of us. It's like the with God life is possible in the here and now. And we live this with God sort of life when we trust Jesus about where life is found, when we submit our desires for our lives, for his desire for our lives. We stop playing ridiculous games that we know aren't really working. We stop negotiating with God, like we sang in that song, which I absolutely love. We stop our negotiating with God and we just, we just surrender. We say, okay, I, I'm making a mess of my life on my own accord. I appreciate the grace because without the grace, we would have no forward path. But in your grace, I step into this new reality and God, I want to learn a new way to be human and along with your spirit and I will submit. Teach me to live. Teach me to find a better life. So that sort of sets up what we're going to talk about this summer. This summer, we're going to spend 13 weeks exploring the specifics of the with God life. And to do that, what I want to do is unpack the largest single block of Jesus' teaching you find in the New Testament. In fact, the working title for this series for about six months was Essential Jesus, which sounded like a really bad Christian book. So I decided we got to do something else. So that's why we did the better thing. That was funny for me, not for you. That's okay. Moving on, right? So um, largest single block of Jesus' teaching, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so each week we're going to consider something Jesus said to do and then consider what it would look like to actually put it into practice. And so uh, Jesus' teachings is, uh, he, this, the Sermon on the Mount is set on a hill along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and this is a picture that I found online. Somebody had a drone in Israel. I don't know how you pulled that off, so well done there. But you can see the Sea of Galilee here. There's a mountain range called the Golan Heights. Uh, this is a Catholic church that's built at the site. So this is the place tourists go uh, to experience and to reflect uh, the Beatitudes. You find tourist groups reading uh, the Beatitudes and reading the Sermon on the Mount all around this church. Um, so this is sort of, it may not have been actually here, but this kind of gives you the idea of the terrain. There's one picture though that I took when my wife and I were there in January that I have to show you. It's a bit off topic, but it's so good you have to see it. Check this out. So there's a garden that surrounds the church of the Beatitudes um, on the Mount and uh, so you have right over here, you have a fountain, okay, which is kind of cool, like the flowing water fountain, very, you know, peaceful, and the bubbling brook and all that. And then you have this, a quote from Jesus, let anyone who thirsts come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, living water will flow. That's great. You know, like, this is so heartwarming. And then, you know, then it says no entrance, which that's just great. And then it says water, not for drink. <laughs> And I asked the gardener about it, and he said, it's hilarious. Tourists come to Israel, and they won't drink the hotel water, even though it's fine to drink. But they were all trying to drink out of the fountain. And I was like, well, that's the, that's, that's the living Jesus water. And he said, yeah, so we had to put up a sign. I was like, that is absolutely awesome. Someday I'm going to show my people that, and it's going to be a good day. So, th so there you go. Uh, but, so scholars believe that the Sermon on the Mount 
was Jesus, it wasn't something he taught just once. This was the message and the material that he would take from town to town as he was introducing people to this new way to live. And so Matthew records that shortly after calling his first disciples, Jesus begins to teach, Jesus begins to heal, and Jesus begins to draw people from all over Israel, as far away as Jerusalem, some 90 miles away, in order to hear him. So here's the setup. Matthew tells us now, when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to kind of pull his inner core together and say, here's what a with God life looks like. This is the message you're going to take to the world. I'm going to start with you. And that's how the Sermon on the Mount begins. And what I'm actually going to do for the rest of our time today is fast forward and I want to show you how the Sermon on the Mount ends because Jesus concludes with a fair warning to all of us, even and including an arena in Atlanta full of pastors. And it's a warning about ignoring the power and the potential of his instruction. So after Jesus teaches his disciples about anger and lust and murder and revenge, Jesus tells them a story. And it's a famous story. If you grew up in church, you know the story. There's even a famous song about it, which I will not sing because it will plague you for days. But here's what Jesus says after the block of teaching. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, like you've been listening, that's good, and puts them into practice, he says, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And, and to the first century Jewish audience, a wise person is someone who connected choices and consequences. They played scenarios forward. They said, if I do this, then this is where I'm going to end up. So you put, hear Jesus' words, put them into practice. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. He continues. He says, the rain came down. In other words, some time passes. The house has been built on a solid foundation and eventually a storm rolls into the land. Okay, but as we see, he's not talking about houses really. He's talking about lives. But he says, the rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. And again, he's not really talking about a house. He's talking about a life. Have you ever noticed that life is full of storms? Even if you are following the way of Jesus, life is filled with storms. In the past two weeks, I just made a list of some that have come across my desk, Keystone friends and other friends who have emailed me and just asked for prayer on different things. Um, I had a husband loses his job after 15 years uh, due to restructuring storm. I had a wife has an affair with a guy she met at a gym after years of marital struggle storm. I had a teenage son is in a pattern of regular alcohol abuse storm. Teenage daughter got pregnant with, this was kind of interesting, unacceptable boyfriend storm. Uh, and then I had a grandma is battling cancer storm. Life is full of storms. We live in a world that's not the way it was supposed to be. And storms are inevitable. But what Jesus tells his followers is that there's a way to prepare for storms before they come. And what you do to prepare for the storm will affect the sort of life you experience in the middle of the storm. When you actually do what Jesus invites you to do, you build your life on a firm foundation. You return to the way God designed for you to live. And so your life will stand better in the storm. And notice, he doesn't say there won't be a storm. He doesn't promise a life free of storms. He promises us the, right, the ability to stand in the storm. Uh, he continues, he says there's another option and it's the life on autopilot option. It's the option you choose if you never choose. Um, and it's the option that comes naturally to us. Here's what he says. 
He says, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, which, you know, arena full of pastors is going, "Uh uh-huh, is like a foolish man who built his house on sand, which you would never do. Anyone who's built a sandcastle knows that's a bad idea, right? Especially Lake Michigan being up four feet or whatever it is, right? Yeah, a fool is just somebody who doesn't connect choices and consequences. They look at 100 people that make a destructive choice that crash their life, and they go, yeah, but that won't be me, right? You have friends like this, right? Don't look at the person next to you, right? Yeah, like everybody who does this gets hurt, but I'm gonna be different. And Jesus would say, well, that's being foolish, but when you hear the word, my words and don't do anything with them, it's, it's like you're being foolish. You built your house on sand and the same storms come. Check this out. Next verse. The rain came down. The streams rose. The wind blew and beat against the house. Same words. Same storms. He says, it, and it fell with a great crash. So it's like Jesus wants to say to all of us, like, it's great that you come. It's great that you listen. It's great that you take notes. It's great that you reflect. It's great that you ponder over your triple shot, half-calf, almond milk latte. All good, right? But if you want to access the better life, you're going to have to do what I invite you to do. You're just going to have to. And I'm going to love you either way. It's not about me loving you. But it's like, if you want to access the better life that I came to reveal, you're going to have to do something with what you hear. It's great if you hear it and believe it. It's great if you hear it and you feel like you need to change. It's great if you hear it and you have warm fuzzies about it. Anybody ever had that? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like I should do something with that. But if you want to access the better life, you have to put Jesus' teaching into practice. And that idea sets the stage with where we're going to go for the rest of the summer. This summer, we're going to get really, really practical. We're going to explore what Jesus has to say about some of the core feelings, emotions, and experiences and struggles that are common to all of us. One topic at a time, he's going to show us a response to a situation that leads to a better life. And just fair warning, some of the material might get a bit uncomfortable or hit close to home. But just understand that he loves us and that's why he wants to speak to those areas in our lives. So here's, here's a, a few questions to sort of preview where we're going to go. And by the way, if you're on vacation, podcast. It's going to be a good time. Here we go. Um, Jesus is going to help us answer this question. What are you going to do when someone makes you really, really angry? And because they are the reason you can't get what you want or think you need. When they're, when they're in your way or when they've crushed your dreams or from your perspective, they've ruined your life. What, what do you do when you get angry? Another one. Um, what are you going to do when you're physically attracted to someone who's off limits to you for one reason or another? What are you going to do? Not if. When. What are you going to do? Next one. Uh, what are you going to do when you're not sure you want to be married to your spouse anymore? Again, not if. It's reality. It's when. But what, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when someone hurts you deeply? Not what is your response right now? What is your natural response? But if you said, okay, I want to live, I want to live in the kingdom of God. If, if, if that's a new reality, if the with God life is really possible, then that's, that's what I want to do. So Jesus, what do I do if I want to live a with God life and someone hurts me deeply? What, what, what do you have me do? And then Oh, one more. What will you do when you have a chance to do something to hurt your enemy? And just for fun, imagine that you could do something to hurt them and nobody would ever find out. 
And if they did find out, they would think you were justified. What would you do? Friends, Jesus came to earth to point us back to God's design for a better sort of life. And he carried this incredible message that because of his sacrifice and by embracing his sacrifice, you are already loved, forgiven, and saved. That God has made a way for you to be reconciled to him. And then in light of that reality, he's like, would you rethink your approach to this life right here and right now? Because one thing I know about all of us, deep down, even though we have a lot of flags that are going off right now with the questions and a lot of, but you don't understand my situation. But for all of us, we all want a better life. It's what we want for us. And here's the good news today. It's what your heavenly father wants for you. Whatever's in your past, whatever mistakes you carried into this place, whatever regrets, and some of them are right here in front of you today. Whatever you carried into this place, you need to understand that your heavenly father loves you he forgives you and he wants you to move forward. Like your failure doesn't disqualify you from having a better future. He's not done with you. He invites you to submit to the teachings of his son who came to show us and in doing so, find hope, find a better future, find a better life because following Jesus really does make your life better and following Jesus really does make you better at life. Would you stand? And I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, there's, there's something so wonderful about all of this that you, the creator of the universe, know us as individuals and love us as individuals and have hopes and dreams for us as individuals and that when we fail and when we fall, it breaks your heart. But as a perfect heavenly father, you pick us up and invite us forward to live the with God sort of life. And so this morning as we stand on the edge of an incredible exploration of the core teachings of your son, I pray that you would help us just be open, not only to your love, but open to changing, changing our mind, changing our ways. That as we do, um, one step at a time, we would move in the direction of a better sort of life here and now. So thank you for loving us. Thank you for never giving up on us. Thank you for sending Jesus for us. May we have the courage to actually follow him. We bless you, we celebrate you. We ask for your grace and your peace to be on us all. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week.